My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with David Lavallee. It is easy to overestimate the extent to which circulating information can, in and of itself, create social change. Collective material interventions by movements of whatever sort, from the meekest of petitions to the most militant of direct actions, are invariably necessary to push change forward, and it takes more than did you know to catalyze such things. But even so, even if change is not driven by information on its own, nonetheless the circulation of knowledge and stories is still one key element within the overall context of how movements happen. David Lavallee divides his life into two parts, before he saw the climate change documentary An Inconvenient Truth, and after. He'd been working as a hiking guide in the Rockies, but he knew then that he needed to start doing his bit to fight climate change. And given the profound impact it had on him, he decided, despite never having done anything of the sort before, that his bit would take the form of filmmaking. To the Ends of the Earth is Lavallee's second film. It deals with the increasing investment in and dependence on what the industry describes as unconventional sources of fossil fuels, but that he describes as extreme energy. That means things like tar sands, fracking, and oil shale. What these diverse sources have in common is that they require far larger energy inputs than conventional oil to get the same energy output. In the film, Lavallee talks to people living with the impacts of these highly destructive forms of resource extraction, to activists who are mobilizing against them, as well as to world-renowned energy economists. Folks in that last category argue that along with extreme energy's appalling environmental impact, the energy inputs required to produce extreme energy make it unsustainable even in purely economic terms, that the amount of return per unit of energy invested in the sources that are increasingly coming to dominate our supply is simply not sufficient to sustain industrialized society as we understand it. Lavallee talks with me about his filmmaking process, about the challenges and opportunities offered by filmmaking as a medium for addressing complex social issues, and about the threat posed by extreme energy sources like the tar sands and fracking. We spoke by Skype to phone while he was in Toronto for the Planet in Focus Film Festival. My name's David Lavalley. I'm a producer-director. White Gold Productions is my company, and my new film is called To the Ends of the Earth. It's an exploration of the world of unconventional or aka extreme energy that is becoming an increasing part of our energy mix and it examines the question of whether or not these kinds of resources that government and industry have huge plans for are actually sustainable, not just environmentally, but economically. I didn't go to film school or anything like that. I think with documentary, the key aspect is having access to a story of some kind and my first Epiphanal moment was when I, um, I sort of measure my life in two parts before I saw the film An Inconvenient Truth and after I saw that film. That really shook me to my core. 
at the time I was working as a hiking guide in the Canadian Rockies. And then I saw this film about former vice president actually talking about glaciers and how they were disappearing and how we were responsible for that. And that shook me and sent me on this journey of knowing that film was such a powerful medium to communicate in. And I wanted to find out, okay, how do you do this? And so I ended up networking, learning, doing what I could, raising money, raising funds, and then went out and shot my first film, Whitewater Black Gold. And when I was making Whitewater Black Gold, I realized that there are very large aspects of the tar sands story that I wasn't really addressing. Of course, Whitewater Black Gold, it's basically a journey across the Columbia ice fields, which is the headwaters of where the oil sands get their water from. And I decided to cross that ice field and paddle down the river, the Athabasca River, past the tar sands plants, following this imaginary drop of water to see what happens to it. And that became the film Whitewater Black Gold. And from that, I realized that there were significant aspects of the story that weren't being told in any film that I'd ever seen, specifically the amount of energy it takes to make energy and this idea of energy profit in our society. We need energy profit to maintain this industrialized civilization and where we actually getting energy profit. In the tar sands, they use immense amounts of natural gas and there's nuclear power plant proposals and all kinds of things just to make oil. And so is there energy profit at the end of the day? And also this idea of the economic sustainability of unconventional energy had never really been addressed to my satisfaction in any kind of film that I'd seen. So I thought, okay, let's dig deep into those kinds of issues and let's make a film about that and hopefully shift the conversation away from this economy versus environment, that same tired old trope that you see all the time in mainstream media, and shift the conversation into something actually useful. So why don't you define some of these terms for listeners? What is extreme energy and what do you mean by energy profit? What I call extreme energy, industry would use the word unconventional, so it requires unconventional methods to extract it. That's a fairly large category. So conventional oil would be, you know, what you'd picture coming out of Saudi Arabia. You basically drill a well and up from the ground comes bubbling crude, super easy, and doesn't require a lot of processing or refining. You look at the other end of the spectrum and you've got tar sands oil, which is basically a ball of dirt, and you've got to separate the sand from the oil. And it requires immense quantities of natural gas, as well as immense quantities of water to make natural gas and water together make steam. And that's how they separate the sand from the oil, or bitumen, rather. It's not actually oil. So as you can imagine, that process is very energy intensive, which leads to the question of, is there actual energy profit? Energy profit is, I speak with some of the foremost energy economists in the world, actually, in this film. And they talked about something called EROI, or Energy Return on Investment. So if you picture, if you're a a business person, you know, it's the same as capital return on investment. You invest capital and you get a profit. And that's what helps you run your business. Well, it's the same thing with our society. We need energy profit to maintain an industrialized society. And they've actually boiled this down to a ratio. And the ratio, the minimum required, the minimum energy profit required to maintain an industrialized society is 1 to 12. So one barrel of oil or energy equivalent gets you back 12 barrels in return. And then they talked about the tar sands and how we're actually getting at best 1 to 5. So less than half of what's required to maintain an industrialized society. So if those kinds of numbers and that kind of math should definitely give people pause as to whether or not the tar sands can actually do everything they're promising it can do, you know, providing energy for our society. 
So 1 to 12, in many cases, up to 30% of the projects in the tar sands are actually energy negative, meaning that they consume more energy in their manufacture than they give back to society. So long-term going forward, in terms of powering our society, it's just a non-starter. And that's part of the conversation that we, to my mind, haven't begun to have yet. Tell me about the process of making the film. Once you had the idea and you knew you wanted to make it, what then? The initial part of filmmaking is you have to write a treatment. What's your concept for the film? And pass that around to funders to see if you can get any traction. My process was just doing a lot of reading, reading dry energy economics kind of things. And what I found in that was that there was actually a really compelling global story in all of this. Unconventional extreme energy was becoming an increasingly big part of our energy mix. So the more I did research like that, the more I found prominent thinkers in this area who were just describing not just an unsustainable energy system, but connected to that an unsustainable economy that is far too dependent on fossil fuels. So I do more research. I did a number of trips. I went up to the Arctic, got charged by a polar bear on the flow edge of Pond Inlet there up in Nunavut. I was up there investigating Arctic oil and some of the plans from seismic oil companies to go up there and bomb the seabed with sound, harming many marine mammals in the process that the Inuit hunt and depend on for subsistence. I also got the chance to go down to Utah and bounce around on a Land Rover in the Uinta Basin, which is the largest area of wilderness in the contiguous United States, the lower 48. And there are huge plans for oil shale, which is probably the worst hydrocarbon in the world. If you can imagine something even worse than tar sands oil, this is it. It's basically a rock that burns and, of course, as you might imagine, consumes far more energy to make it, turn it into oil than you get back to put in your vehicles. And also got the chance to wander around the tar sands and also explore the energy chains in British Columbia, specifically of the different types of energy like fracking that are actually what I call feeding the beast, so feeding the tar sands with energy. And when you picture those energy chains from British Columbia, for example, uh, one of the energy chains that I investigate is the Site C Dam. And I met and talked with a farmer who's going to lose his land to flooding because of that dam is being asked to pick up and leave after his family's been on that land for generations. That's the first beginning step of the energy chain. The next step of the energy chain is for that Site C dam to power the fracking operations further north. And that fracking then gets put in a pipeline and piped to the tar sands to make unconventional extreme oil. And so that whole energy chain is sort of emblematic of how our entire economy is completely unsustainable if we continue to deepen our dependence on fossil fuels. Every single subject that you talk to and every bit of research that they publish, you uncover other aspects, other facets of the story. And I guess the most challenging thing for me was the immense volume of information that's out there and making sense of it all. And figuring out, okay, in the grand scheme of things, in the global picture here of unconventional extreme energy, which aspects are the most important? Which economic aspects? Uh, A lot of the stuff that I learned about was really quite complex economic concepts that, you know, you just can't get those across in a film. So you have to sort of pick and choose. So I guess the process begins, the creative process begins by doing all this research, filling your mind with all this facts. And then as you get through the into the post-production process and editing, then you have to make sense of it all and boil it all down to key elements. And that's probably the most challenging part of all is figuring out what really matters in this entire story. So that was kind of my process. 
expose myself to as much information as I could and then try and make sense of it all. To a certain extent, you always have to have a justifiable plan. Certainly funders want you to have that. And you have to have a key idea. And I certainly had the core of the idea from the beginning, but along the way, there were many, many surprises, different kinds of things that I learned. I had sort of begun with this idea of peak oil and how oil globally was peaking and then it was descending. And then I found out more about, well, you know, new technologies such as tar sands, bitumen, et cetera, and fracking have vastly expanded the amount of resources available to us. But then as I learned more, I found out that just because the resources are large doesn't mean you can actually get them to market and they consume so much energy and money and capital that they're not necessarily viable. So I would find different kinds of information that would challenge my assumptions and go back and forth. So it was always a challenge to decide, okay, what's key here and what's important and what isn't. So what did the experts that you talked to make of the fact that there is so little broad understanding of these serious problems with the energy system? Well, for example, Dr. Charles Hall, University of Syracuse, New York, he's one of the founders of the energy return on investment issue. And he decries the lack of economic research and how economics is just not an exact science. So industry people would say, oh, we've got 400 years of resources here. You know, we've got so much. Look at all this fracked gas that we can get out of the ground and we're good to go for the next 400 years. And he would challenge that with this idea that, oh, wait a second. For one, the economics of it simply don't work. It's $9 million to frack a well and hundreds of truck trips full of water and all kinds of resources and energy. And he would describe the ultimate problem with our economy is we're headed towards something called the net energy cliff. That's where globally on the aggregate, the EROI drops so low, the energy return on investment ratio drops so low that it can't sustain a globalized, industrialized economy. We've got huge supply chains around the world that require immense amounts of energy. And when the quality of your resources, it's not the quantity of your resources, it's the quality. And when the quality of those resources drop so low, you know, you just can't, you can't ship apples to New Zealand back and forth around the world to Canada or whatever on tar sands bitumen. It's just not an energy efficient enough type of fuel. So the net energy cliff is coming. And I think probably a lot of these researchers would want that to become more a part of the mainstream lexicon that we're approaching this net energy cliff. It's about 10 years away. And it manifests itself in a wide variety of different ways. For example, in 2008, we had a global financial meltdown, which was caused in part or amplified at least by the highest oil prices in recorded history. You know, when you hear about the 2008 global financial meltdown, they're only talking about, well, subprime mortgages and what have you. These are symptoms that are not causes of that. So I guess they would probably all say we need to have a different kind of conversation about the true fundamental issues, economic issues that we have facing going forward. Given that what you've described sounds at least like it presents an existential threat to the oil and gas industry, how do people in the industry make sense of it all? Oftentimes, I found people in industry very open to understanding this because they're professionals and work in this domain, open to understanding this in a way that regular citizens are not because they're out there trying to get energy projects off the ground and spending millions and watching them go nowhere. Certain ones 
oftentimes you'll see CEOs of companies who are on the front lines of seeing all this stuff go on. And obviously, they're very tight-lipped when they're working in that position. But then when they retire, they're very open and talking about things like peak oil and the economic challenges that their companies are facing. I mean, the bottom line is they're in business to sell a product and they will only present to the public the most positive aspects of that product. They're not really well positioned to have an open conversation with the public about the fact that their product is simply not sustainable, either from a climate perspective or from an economic perspective. Those kind of honest conversations make stock prices drop. So these are not the parts of society that we're going to go to for solutions on this. We need a massive cultural movement, a well-informed cultural movement to remove subsidies and encourage people to divest from these companies, which will be something that forces us to create other economic alternatives, which are increasingly looking to be less costly. And in the making of the film, how did you go about weaving together the expert voices with the voices of the people directly affected by the consequences of all of these forms of extreme energy? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. That was kind of the big challenge in editing the film is I wanted to have the high-level experts, energy economists, to give context, overall context. But then in order to really breathe life into a story, you have to talk to the people who are impacted on the ground. So, for example, I cover the story of Carolyn Campbell, who's an independent journalist who finds out about a large spill to surface, a massive oil spill in the SAG-D projects of the tar sands near Cold Lake. So her story, her investigation as she goes through, she finds out that this company is actually drilling through a collapsing underground salt formation called the Devonian Salt. And you have to ask yourself, okay, it's a house of cards under there. Why are they drilling in this area? Well, the answer is they're running out of easy, conventional oil, and we're having to go into these really extreme, costly places. And we're certainly not doing that as a society by choice. So her investigation is kind of a case study that illustrates the wider problems that we're facing in terms of supplying energy to our society. Or take, for example, the story of Ken Boone, farmer living in the Peace River Valley, who's going to have land flooded for a dam. Well, what's this dam for? Where's the power for that dam going? Well, it's going to feed fracking operations and then going to feed the tar sands with that natural gas to separate the sand from the oil. Their stories are emblematic of the millions of stories out there, you know, farmers across North America and across the world now, Australia, there's all kinds of farmers who are in the commodity frontiers, so to speak, sort of forgotten voices of people who are having to bear the brunt of our fossil fuel addiction and having to live with that and the consequences, the health consequences, economic consequences, what have you, of that. So I think it's super important to kind of weave in the voices of people on the front lines in order to make the struggle real, to be able to really understand not only the wider context, but also how this is impacting individuals on the ground. At the end of the film, you focus some attention on some of the popular responses, popular resistance, popular movements that are pushing back against the harmful impacts of some of these forms of extreme energy. Talk about some of that and about some of the important things that you learned about that resistance in the course of making the film. Part of my experience was sort of inspired by Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything, and she had a chapter in there which she called Blockadia. She spent time with people in the Keystone XL pipeline, these sort of protest camps where people were living there blockading 
in many cases, protecting their own land from these destructive energy projects. And she conceptualized in her book this idea of blockadia as being this massive movement that has arisen in response to the increasing extremeness of our energy resources. As we've gotten into the world of unconventional energy, the movements have grown tremendously, certainly in British Columbia. My experience of watching the birth of a movement against the Kinder Morgan pipeline has been quite something to watch how social movements can spread like wildfire. And I think these kinds of movements have really taken the industry aback because they're not used to dealing with them because, well, they've been doing conventional oil and that's not very controversial. But once they've moved into this realm of unconventional extreme energy, then all of a sudden there's all kinds of blowback and rightly so for a number of different reasons. So it's been interesting to watch these movements gain in size and strength and actually become viable forces where they are costing the industry so much money that they are shutting down projects. And that's unprecedented. That sort of gives me hope for the future that a people-powered movement can really begin to shift the culture around this. What would you say are some of the key strengths and key weaknesses of documentary film as a medium for tackling complex issues like the ones that you've tackled in this film? Certainly the weaknesses are the fact that film is not resourced as well as other mediums in Canadian society. I mean, a lot of our funding model has been stripped away by reality television, which is more popular fodder for public consumption. And it takes a very long time to make a film. It took me three years to make this. And to get it out to a large audience, and now I've got the challenge of getting it out to as large an audience as I can. So it's a big, unwieldy thing. It's much easier to write a book and pound that out, I would think. But that being said, film is a way, it's a very powerful, as I said, you know, I measure my own life in turn, in, you know, before I saw An Inconvenient Truth and after I saw that movie. So it has a deep, lasting impact. You're able to see sort of the emotional aspects of a story. You know, we connect with people through characters in a way that no other medium can really do, I feel. And we can understand different facets of the story if the story is well told. It can advance an issue by giving people a different sort of paradigm through which to see an issue that, you know, for example, the news just can't do. The news will present one side, okay, here's these environmentalists, and they're all rabid kind of thing. <laughs> and then here's the industry people saying, well, you know, our product is, is a really good product. And so that kind of story gets played out again and again and again, and it's vastly oversimplified. So film can unpeel those layers and look deep into an issue and help people with a new understanding. So that's why I value film as a, as a method of social change. What sorts of things are you doing to get the film out there? I'm on the festival circuit right now seeking distribution. I'm doing community screenings. People can license the film direct from my website, endsofearthfilm.com, if they want to do community screenings in various parts of the country. One of the key ways where individual groups, whether they be environmental groups or groups interested in economics and policy change in a variety of areas, can use the film as a tool. I've really made this film as a tool for social movements that are questioning our current fossil fuel paradigm in whatever way that they're doing it. Some groups are focused on water issues. Some groups are focused on climate change, some on economics and policy change and that kind of thing. I'm hoping this film is useful for a wide variety of different groups. As well, sometime early next year, we're going to have a broadcast on TVO, TV Ontario, as well. That'll be the broadcast premiere. 
And uh, yeah, just getting it out in a wide variety of different ways, educational institutions as well are licensing the film. So catch as catch can, I'm doing what I can to make sure it's seen by a very wide audience. And the community screening part of that, is that something that's already happening or is it too early for that? No, actually, it taken off just this September. We began a tour. We had some funding to do a tour around British Columbia. So we did a nine city and town tour. And we were kind of focused on the ground zeros. BC is very much, uh, especially with our current premier, Christy Clark, is very much an energy hungry kind of person. She really has been pushing LNG, liquefied natural gas, which in British Columbia comes from fracking. So we should really call these pipelines fracked gas pipelines. And, of course, the recent approval of the Pacific Northwest LNG pipeline and the terminal at the end, which is built on top of one of the world's best salmon estuaries, which is kind of an absolutely insane place to build an LNG terminal. Yeah, so we did a tour up to these ground zero areas and also along places like Merritt and Kamloops, which are ground zero in terms of the Kinder Morgan pipeline, which is our big battle out west. And I'd like to expand it. So that's begun. We've really covered BC at this point. But we're looking forward to maybe uh, doing a tour out in eastern Canada, so Energy East supporting people in the battle against Energy East as those regulatory decisions come down fairly soon from the Trudeau government. So it has begun, but we're still in early stages of it. What work do you hope this film does out in the world? Well, I hope it helps support people to question the current paradigm. I mean, I think at this point... The tar sands, people mostly understand that it's fairly environmentally damaging. But if you were to expand that question, say, well, does it actually provide energy for society of a significant nature? And does it actually provide jobs or prosperity? I think they would not necessarily question that. They would sort of assume, well, oil makes money and oil always has and always will. So helping people understand we've crossed the line when we start mining our oil instead of drilling for it and that these are not sustainable economic projects. So if it helps support people in understanding that and questioning the economic plans of our country, really, because we've got a prime minister who's quite gung-ho about pipelines, then I think that if I can accomplish that, then mission accomplished, really. So in the course of making this film, what other aspects of the oil and gas industry or of the popular resistance to it did you discover that you think deserve more attention and exploration in greater depth via documentary film? I think my film is probably just an opening salvo in terms of exploring the economics. I'd like to see a longitudinal exploration of energy projects in the tar sands or Arctic oil from an economic perspective to examine, you know, where these projects are going and that kind of thing. I think there's more room for different kinds of stories for shift in this narrative. One film alone won't do that. There's a whole universe of stories out there, and I think the more people start to turn over stones, the more they start to see interesting things. So we haven't heard the last of these major energy projects. Certainly not with the current pipeline battle in Canada. There's lots of stories to be told around that as well. You have been listening to my interview with David Lavalley about his new documentary film, To the Ends of the Earth. To learn more about it or to find out how to arrange a screening in your community, go to endsofearthfilm.com. That's endsofearthfilm.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, 
go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Your